Helen Bouchelle and her daughter Brittany Pasalacqua were murdered on November 20, 2009, and this is Helen's mother and Brittany's Nana's story. Although all of our podcasts are tragic, this episode tells the story of the double murder of a mother and her 12-year-old daughter. It may be particularly distressing to some listeners. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Geneva is in the heart of New York's scenic Finger Lakes region in the United States. It is a picturesque small city that rests on the northern rim of Seneca Lake. Geneva is an award-winning wine region and tourists drive there with a thirst for knowledge from the wineries. There is an 18th century castle that has people bask in the romance of a picnic on its grounds. Settlers began to arrive in the late 18th century, and the area around Geneva was once a village known as Cana de Sega, until these European settlers arrived and the village of Geneva was first incorporated in 1806. Geneva has deep roots in farming and agriculture. The abundance of fresh produce and dairy has encouraged farm-to-table restaurants, craft microbreweries, and markets to open for business over the years. The downtown area is closed off during warm summer evenings, allowing visitors and locals to enjoy the eclectic food scene that is prominent here. The first Friday of each month, downtown merchants have musicians, artists, and community groups take over their spaces to celebrate art and culture. Being known as the lake trout capital of the world, the fishing in Geneva, New York is excellent, and their famous National Lake Trout Derby brings many enthusiasts there on Memorial Day weekend. There is little traffic here, encouraging many cyclists to spend their days enjoying the scenic rural roads. It is no wonder that for several years in a row, Geneva has been on the Playful City USA list. Hello. Hi, it's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered Podcast. Hello. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm well, thank you. When Helen was born, she was the first of two children that their mother was so happy to have in her life. When Helen's baby brother was due on her second birthday, she couldn't have been more pleased. They were born two years and two days apart in the end, and they quickly became best friends. They were always there for each other and spoke to each other about everything. Helen's brother knew that his sensitive sister was always available for a chat and would listen attentively to him. 
they would go to each other to talk through the goings-on in their lives. Helen was a mother's dream. As a toddler, Dale, Helen's mother, never had to scold her and could ask anything of her young daughter, knowing it would be done with a smile. Helen's cheery disposition made being her mother a pleasure and becoming a big sister an easy transition. An easygoing little girl that was happiest spending time with the mother and brother she so adored. And that love was easily and joyfully reciprocated. Helen was a girl that would spend hours alone in her room contentedly playing with her toys or listening to music. She was helpful and kind and gentle. She never asked for much and was a pleasant and respectful little girl. Even through her teen years, she was happiest at home with mom, bringing her best friend over, hanging out surrounded by the people she most loved. Brittany was a very special child, a little girl who always looked out for others. She and her mother Helen were joined at the hip. Brittany, her mother and grandmother, would be seen around town, three generations of women heading out to the craft shops, anticipating their finds, giggling throughout their day wondering what beautiful jewelry creations they would make when they got back. Brittany began jewelry making at the age of 11, and with the guidance and support of her mother, she began to make beautiful pieces. Brittany had a big brother, and they loved each other. Brittany's brother was a natural-born protector. He would follow behind Brittany on her way home from school, ensuring her safety and looking out for any potential bullies that may be looking to be mean to his beloved sister. He was three years older than Brittany and took this responsibility seriously. This story is one of such horror and sadness and loss. Devastation was about to rain on an unsuspecting family, a close family. This boy of only 15 years, a loving son and thoughtful brother, a good young man who was helpful and thought enough to see to his sister's safe arrival home from school each day. This young man who was always there to protect his sister, had to walk in on a scene that had seasoned detectives shaken to the core. This is the story of Helen Bouchelle and Brittany Pasalacqua's murders. She was, if I can say, the perfect child. She was, well, she was, she was a happy child. She was the kind of child where sometimes, you know, you just get really tired. And I would say, Helen, can you just lay here with mommy for a little bit? And she'd say, okay. And she would. I mean, she she was just an easy child to take care of. She was a quick learner. She was walking at nine months. One of my funny memories of her was one morning I got up and I'm looking for her and I couldn't find her. She was two. And I found her in the bathroom standing in the toilet because she said her slippers were dirty. (laughs) (laughs) And that was her way of washing her slippers. That is adorable. Um, I love it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite memories. Um, she, She was a really good 
good child. She was, like I said, so easy, and she was adorable. She and I were very close all throughout life. We're best friends, not just mom and daughter. The three of us actually made jewelry together. My daughter used to hate crafts, but she got started making jewelry because of a necklace that was given to her from one of her cousins. And so all of a sudden we were going to this craft store all the time, which was so unlike her. You know, I lived about an hour away at the time. So every time I'd go to see her, which was always on my days off, first thing she'd say, can we go to Michael's? Yes, Helen. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, she, she made tons of jewelry. In fact, after they died, there was a table of all, they were all wrapped of all these pieces that she had made for various people, her friends or family. And the very first piece that Brittany made, it actually, the pendant was actually an angel wing. Brittany had made that for me. I still have that. I, st- I have a lot of Helen's jewelry still. Helen was never athletic. Um, Helen liked music. Music was her thing. And she liked, there was a, a roller skating rink in town. That was a big hangout for kids. And, of course, hanging out at the mall. Uh, She and her friends would go hang out at the mall. That was a big thing back then. But I would say uh, music was her biggest thing. She loved Guns N' Roses. Helen was not a typical teenager. She didn't cause her mother any grief. She had that innocence so unlike what you expect to find in many teens. She was sweet. Helen and her best friend liked nothing more than to hang out at each other's homes listening to music. Helen had a passion for roller skating and could be seen at the rink regularly skating to the music she so loved. And secretly, her and her best friend, unknown to their school friends for fear of ridicule, still at the age of 15, would play in their rooms with their Barbie dolls. On a Saturday afternoon, they may be at the mall shopping, eating, and hanging out with others, enjoying some free time before heading back home. Helen was always extremely close to her mother. She was happiest at home, in her room, laughing with friends or chatting with her family. Helen was particularly fond of movies, and she watched her favorites over and over again. She and her mother would spend hours together watching movies, loving every moment. They knew each other so well, they could communicate with a simple lift of the eye, and often did. And that would have them roaring with laughter. As Helen got older, she met a young man whom she fell head over heels for. She was absolutely crazy about him. Helen became a young mother, discovering she was pregnant when she was 19. Her happiness at this news was apparent to everyone, and not for a moment was Helen worried. On the contrary, she couldn't have been more pleased with the news. She and the man of her dreams had a son, and then three years later, a daughter, Brittany. Helen's children were the apples of her eye. She felt she was living the dream, her dream, the life of wife and mother, the white picket fence life she had always aspired to have. And Helen's mother, 
now called Nana, was beyond thrilled with these two new little people in her life, her grandchildren. Sadly, Helen's marriage fell apart after a few years and this was very hard for her to accept. She was terribly distraught. Eventually, she accepted that things would not go back to how they were and was still so happy to have been blessed with two wonderful children. She was so proud of her handsome son and beautiful daughter. Proud of her son, who was growing into such a wonderful young man, looking out for his sister and being kind and loving to her. Brittany, her daughter, was someone she knew as a friend, even at her young age, and they spent every possible second together enjoying each other. They were joined at the hip. Nothing made Helen happier or more proud than her two beautiful children. Helen and her mother, Dale, had a unique relationship where many young people in their 20s want to break free from potential parental interference and freedom from their mothers. This duo never had any hint of a challenging relationship. So Helen was perfectly happy to live with her mother and they spent most of their days together. They each had an unconditional love for the other that never made either of them feel smothered. Dale feels extremely thankful for this love and closeness and will always carry this with her. Helen's love of movies never faded and she would get together with girlfriends and have them repetitively watch her favorites. They always did. They can no longer watch those movies. I moved away, about an hour away, probably about a year and a half before she died. And ironically, um, one of my main reasons was moving, of moving was because we were so close. And I kept thinking, oh my God, what if anything ever happens to me? How is she going to, how is she going to do this? You know, how is she going to do this without me? And like I said, it's, it's ironic because it turned out the opposite way. I was I was really concerned because we were that close. And I asked her one time, I said, Helen, I said, you know, when I'm living there, you know, you're in your room a lot. Why do you even want me there? And she, it's your presence, Mom. And her friends, you know, it wasn't that her friends didn't like me. They did. But they just couldn't themselves imagine wanting to live with their mom. But she genuinely wanted me there. She wanted me living with her because she always wanted that perfect marriage, you know, from death to us, do us part. She wanted the house, the white picket fence, and she thought she had it all at one point, but it didn't work out. But, I mean, he was, he was a good dad to the kids, to Brandon and Brittany. Oh, Brittany. Um, Brittany, like I said, she was 12 when she died, but she hadn't really gotten into that typical tween age. And that I mean by she wasn't mouthy, at least not that I ever saw. Like I said, I would always go there on my days off. And Helen lived in the upstairs apartment and she would hear me coming up the stairs. And she would just come running to the stairs. Nana! And as soon as I got up there, she would always just wrap her arms around my legs and hug me. Helen and I 
love to watch movies together, and, and usually Brittany did too, but there was one particular movie in particular. It's called Lake House. It's about this girl and this guy who they kind of go back in the past, and to Brittany, it was like, this is stupid, you know, this can't happen. So she really didn't like the movie. So I went, one of the days I went over there, I told Brittany, I said, hey, Brittany, I got a movie for us to watch. So she comes running out. She said, what'd you get? I said, I bought the lake house. <laughs> she says, and she stomps off. <laughs> and I said, Brittany, I'm just kidding. I didn't bring it. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm going to the channels and didn't I come across lake house? Oh my. So I yelled out to her. I said, okay, Brittany, I found a movie for us to watch. <laughs> she comes in and she sees I have leg calls on. <laughs> and she says, <laughs> and she, she storms off and walks away, or kind of stomps away. Oh, my. Um, but we used to watch the same movies over and over again. Brittany, Brittany didn't like bullies. So, you know, she, that was the kind of, person that she would befriend were people that were being bullied mm. and that in itself kind of caused her problems because people were starting to bully her because of that but you know we were talking about her brother you know they kind of had the the typical brother-sister relationship but her brother and his best friend would follow her home from school at a distance just to make sure nobody was picking on her. And mm. God forbid if anybody did. That is um, so nice. The, yeah, there was one incident that where they saw someone going after them and they stepped right in and told them there, were, there was no what's about it, leave her alone. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, he was he was allowed to have issues with his sister, but don't anyone else. And the same with his friends. They were very protective of her. I'm very anti-bullying. I don't know if that's why, but um, I'm very anti-bullying. That's one of my things that in domestic violence I, I advocate. Brittany was such a sweet little girl looking out for others. She fought for the underdog constantly ensuring that those without the strength to speak up had a voice. Hers. Brittany would spend her lunch hours and free time at school sitting with those that were at risk of being bullied, defending them, protecting them, having learned from her brother what is right. Looking out for those more vulnerable than you and to never sit back and allow bad things to happen to others. Brittany took his lead and in the end, became the victim of bullies herself. The bullies in her school began to make her a target and would pick on her. This didn't deter this feisty young girl. She continued to do what she knew was right. Brittany would head home at the end of the day with a huge smile. Nothing much affected this tween girl's moods. Brittany was fun-loving and happy, and nothing was going to stop her from feeling that way. Tell me about the, I mean, tragic moment that you heard that, about what happened. Tell me about that moment. Hmm. I was at work. 
about an hour away. I was waitressing at the time. So my phone was in the office. And somehow my son-in-law, and I, to this day I don't know how he got my friend's cell phone number, but he did. And he called him and told him. So I was called into the office and my friend told me. And um, uh, we just made a beeline out of there and got back as soon as we can. It was the longest drive, but you're in disbelief the whole time. You want to believe it's it's not right, you know. I just remember feeling numb and no, this can't be and that we're going to get there and everything's going to be okay. And then you get there and you see all that yellow tape. It was uh, pretty devastating. I just, I remember, I don't know if I jumped the tape or if I ran under it. I tried my best to get into the apartment, but they wouldn't let me, of course. You know, I didn't know at the time what had been done to them. But I just remember kept I kept telling them I just I need to hold them one more time, and um, I was eventually let off by a detective into his vehicle. And of course now I know it was uh, to keep me away, out of sight. They didn't want me to see them bring the bodies out, and they didn't want me going in for several reasons. Right, and so you're sitting in the back of this police car and. What are what are they telling you at this point? He's asking me questions. You know, of course, who do I think did it? And I didn't have any doubt. I told him John Brown. Then I remember saying John Edward Brown. I don't know why I, I threw his middle name in. And I honestly can't remember a lot of the conversation. So much of that time is blank for me. I was actually, you know, I wasn't even, even in the back. I, I was in the front seat with them. And um, they were they were just trying to protect me from what was within. They didn't want me to see what had been done. Plus, you know, of course, they're worried about the crime scene. They don't want to contaminate it, you know. They, they really handled everything really well. This is all in retro, retrospect. Um, at the time, I just, I I wanted to see him. She had had a really bad car accident in June of 2009. She had a lacerated liver, uh, fractured femur, broken hip. She had pins and rods put in. She had to go to rehab afterwards. And like I said, she'd only known him for a couple weeks. and. I was living an hour away. She lived upstairs, and he offered to go stay with her to help her out. So I didn't really know him that well at the time, and I thought about leaving my job and moving in with her to help her out. But then I thought my income is really the only income she has at this point. And I used to bring her all my, I used to save all my quarters, my tips. And I had this great big long tube I'd fill up. And um, every week I'd bring them to her and at least bought her groceries. And I was able to pay. I remember I had I paid her electric bill one year or one, one uh, month while she was on in there because everyone in her whole building had their power shut off. So I knew I needed to 
have a work, have a job to at least help her out in that respect. I kick myself for that a lot. I wished I had just left my job and moved in with her. This probably wouldn't have happened. This monster had made friends with Helen's sister-in-law. Helen and her sister-in-law were also friends, so it was only natural that he and she would eventually meet. And they did. Helen wanted to do everything right and protect her children. There was a registry in New York State, so Helen decided to use this tool that was there to help people avoid becoming victims of potential abusers. She looked up this new man in her life, wanting to see to it that her children were not being put in a dangerous situation. She looked on the registry to make sure he wasn't on it. Helen wasn't going to bring a psychopath or pedophile or criminal into her home. She did find his name, of course. But his explanation seemed not only plausible, but honorable, defending a woman in a bar. Her daughter, Brittany, was currently the victim of bullies, and she encouraged her son's protection of his sister. So this man, to Helen, could have seemed like a hero. Those that don't mingle in circles with criminals have no idea how their minds work, what lies they tell. And this family has come to find out that the lie he told is a common one that ex-cons use as a cover for why they were in jail. Helen's law would be there to help protect people, to help people know the reality of why someone was indeed incarcerated. The real reason, not the fictitious stories they tell new unknowing victims. This guy knew Helen's sister-in-law and she met him through her. Helen looked him up and was told a noble story, yet still was subjected to unspeakable horrors. This is the reason for Helen's law, to have the registry speak to those that have the foresight and courage to use it. Helen's law is a necessary tool. So she did what she could to find out what he was in prison for. And this is, this is where my bill comes in. She looked him up on the sex offender registry and she looked him up on our state's website and all she could find was assault in the second. And so many crimes can fall under that category. So he told her he had gotten into a barroom brawl protecting a girl. And of course, you know, that's sounding like, wow, okay, this guy's going to protect me if anything happens, you know? Yes, it's um, it's a noble a noble crime if you want to call it that, right? You know, exactly, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I, I've found out since then so many guys who have fallen under what he really did are using the same thing and have used the same thing, same excuse that the, it was a barroom brawl, and you know, who's he had actually thrown his infant baby into a wall, causing brain damage, cracking her skull. Infant baby. And that was and what he was he in prison started, for? Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay, so he threw his own infant child against a wall, cracking his skull, and he went to prison for assault in the second? Yep. 
Yeah, and only did two and a half years. Oh my his goodness! Own child. Oh my goodness! And I only found out last summer, just last June. I'm sorry, last June I found out from someone who had been in prison with him. I have a friend, or I did have a friend that used to work with former uh, inmates, and he had been in with in prison with John Brown on his first stint. And John Brown told him he had he had aspirations to kill someone. The way the the way the website reads, it's so generic. I guess this is the best way I can put it. Assault one, assault two, assault three. Who really knows what falls under those categories? Even most patrol or parole officers will have to call and find out, okay, what did this person do? Because, I mean, I would think assault two or what he did would be a lot worse than assault two. I would consider Um, that attempted murder. Thank you very much. Yes. Throwing his infant daughter against the wall. This didn't constitute a severe signal in the register. It allowed Helen to think that a barroom brawl was a reasonable excuse for his incarceration. That he had stepped in to protect a woman's honor. Had the registry been as Helen's mother wants it, is fighting for it to be, then her daughter would have been able to see what this monster had done. She would never have given him the time of day. Helen was in a vulnerable position after such a terrible crash and with such severe injuries she needed help. She did what anyone in her position would do. She sought help from the man she was seeing. She had no reason to believe she was in danger, nor that she was bringing someone into her home that would be a threat to the safety of her children. Her mother was over an hour away and Helen knew it was near impossible for her to be there full time. Dale wanted nothing more than to drop everything and run to her daughter's side. She also knew that the extra money she could provide for her daughter and grandchildren would be needed and very much appreciated. She went to see her daughter in the hospital as much as possible, even taking some time off to be there for her family. Dale figured, not only does Helen seem okay with this new man in her life stepping up and helping out, but her daughter-in-law knew him and vouched for him as well. She also obviously had no inkling that there was a monster in their midst and that he would inflict terror on her daughter and poor little granddaughter. The horrible assault on 34-year-old Helen and precious young 12-year-old Brittany that he would then murder the two most important women in her life. He was not who he appeared to be. Please be sure to tune in next week to hear the conclusion of Helen Bouchel and Brittany Pasolacqua's murders. I'd like to thank everyone for being here this week. I have been getting such amazing feedback from the families that tell their stories here. This is all thanks to you, our listeners. I greatly appreciate your support and dedication to Mourning the Murdered. While producing the podcast, I need many tools to be able to bring you quality content each week. I now have an affiliate link with Amazon. 
And by simply clicking on the link before you make your Amazon purchases, you are helping to support my podcast. Once you click on the link, you will be redirected to your Amazon page, ordering as you normally would. There are no extra costs and no fees. Just go to my website, morningthemurderedpodcast.com, and click on the affiliate link. You can also, as always, support the podcast by sending a one-time PayPal contribution or through Patreon, you can donate as little as $1 a month. All of the links can be found on morningthemurderedpodcast.com. So your help is only one click away. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.